and welcome to Talking Fußball Extra, Ausstieg Edition, the podcast that brings you all the latest talking points from the Bundesliga 2 and the most important lower league news. Today it's going to be all about the best transfers of the summer and a dash of SV Sandhausen. My name is Nick Wiltong and I'll try to guide you through this show as best as I can. Joining me today is our tactics expert and the most competent member of the team, it is Jismin Baba. How are you doing today, Jismin? I am very tired. <laughs> I don't know. The, the, the reintroduction into club football couldn't have come at a worse time for me. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ready for it and apparently neither were Darmstadt, but that's all I say on this weekend. <laughs> well, yes, Darmstadt, they fell on some hardship against Hansa Rostock, who won 2-1. The next guest joining me also had a bit of a bad experience this week, and his team lost 1-0 in a tiny North Derby. He's the most competent member of the team when it comes to fan issues, and he's a St. Pauli fan. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, Mike Krukemeyer. How are things on your end? Well, first of all, good to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, I need to say, this might be the last episode I'm doing with you all, because it is the second edition And it was the second loss of St. Pauli before the edition. So <laughs> if we now make a new appointment and we will lose again before that, I will just quit it. So, But apart from that, everything is fine. If you don't think it's the Derby curse, it's the talking foosball curse that has uh, ravaged St. Pauli. Yeah. Well, I mean, I knew that we could put up a powerful show about the Bundesliga too, but that it could be that powerful... I didn't. All right, so in part one of the show, we'll be talking about the best transfers that happened this summer, Mark Friedel's refusal to play, and we'll be giving you a bit of background on the wallflower of the league, which are, of course, SVL Sandhausen. In part two, you'll be getting a few news items from the lower leagues that we think that you should know about. Let's dive straight into the biggest talking points since our last podcast three weeks ago. So the summer transfer window has come to an end. Finally. Some quick facts and figures show that German football has taken an economically more sound approach than some of the other leagues around Europe. Die zweite Bundesliga is no different in that regard as it has turned a profit of roughly 71 million euros according to Transfermarkt. So despite selling off some of the most valuable players to bigger clubs from abroad or in the Bundesliga, I think it's fair to say that some of the players arriving or have changed clubs within the league are going to help their new team. So I thought it might be a good idea if all three of us highlights three transfers that we think are going to make a difference to their new team. So um, Mike, I'm going to start off with you. I mean, which three players do you think are going to have a big impact at their new club? Well, the first of all is the promise for going up to the first division. And this, of course, is Simon Terodde, um, who joined Schalke from Hamburg. And, well, he made it to go up with every single club he has been part of in the last couple of years. The only exception, of course, is Hamburg. And we all know why, because they always end up in fourth place. So that's okay. It's not his fault. But uh, for Schalke, I think he's exactly the man that they need. You have seen that in the first uh, couple of match days. Usually he always scores twice. And uh, on this weekend, it was only one goal. But then that's okay if you win 1-0. So everything is okay from that perspective. Second one... Um, 
Mitchell Weiser, I think he's uh, yeah kind, kind at, at least for me it was kind of surprise because I think in in general he has higher ambitions than the zweite Bundesliga, but there was no perspective for him in Leverkusen anymore, and so he joined Werder Bremen and uh, well on the first weekend he already made his impact and uh, what I what I loved about this transfer was the fact that you know Frank Baumann who's been put on a lot of pressure by the tabloid press and from the, even the Bremen media, he was sort of like presenting it like, look, we get this superb player with Bundesliga experience. And so Mitchell Weiser arrived in Bremen and uh, Bremen media asked, yeah, well, what are you thinking about this transfer to, to Werder? And he says, well, you know, uh, uh, nobody else wanted me. I had no other offers. <laughs> I had no other offers on the table, which, uh, <laughs> as, you know, endorsements for a club move go are, well, you know, It must be in the bottom three, for sure. But sorry for interrupting you. What would be your top transfer? Uh, it's no specific order, so I think all of these three have a big impact. And of course, I need to pick a St. Pauli transfer uh, on number three, and that's Jakov Medic, our central back from Wien Wiesbaden, from the third division. And he is, if you take a look at him, he is such a really, really big guy, a body that can also come directly out of the gym and um, I'm really impressed by him if you see him playing you would say okay he's playing professional football for 10 years at least and he has been with some bigger clubs but in fact he's just 23 and uh, I am really really happy to have him in my side and I think we can expect a lot of him in the near future All right, more than capable uh, replacement for Norwegian legend Tora Reginius. And then, Jasmine, what are your three transfers? Oh, I am gonna start with, I have to say, Sarpreet Singh, even though it's a loan from Bayern Munich to, to Regensburg. Um, I think last season we didn't, he wasn't really used efficiently or at all at Nuremberg. Um, this season, we all know what a talent and how technical he can be. And already, it's really been great for him at Regensburg. He's leading expected assists, the total 2.23 of Zweiterliga. He's third place in key passes, total again. He's created the third most chances as well behind uh, Niklas Schmidt of Werder Bremen and Juve Jan from Schalke. And he's just a joy to watch. And you don't really get... It sounds bad, but you don't get his quality in the Bundesliga that many times because they're normally, as I said, like, he's from Bayern Munich too. They're normally at their youth clubs in the three Liga and they go straight to the Bundesliga. So you don't really get his quality, that type of quality in the Bundesliga. So yeah, he's smashing it for Dagensburg and I think he'll continue to do so. Number three, I feel like this one might be mentioned by Unix. <laughs> so I might, I will just do a quick mention and maybe mention someone else instead so you can yeah, sure. uh, elaborate further. So my um, other pick was Dukish from Thurda from Hanover. Um, it's someone that Werder Bremen desperately needed. A few stats, um, he's second in XG, uh, which is 
5.25 goals on XG, um, experienced in the Spider Bundesliga, and it's a good mix for 9 and a 10. But because I'm sure he will be mentioned again, um, I'm going to replace him with Glatzel mm -hmm. from Cardiff to Hamburg. Again, third in XG behind Dukish and Terada. His XG of 4.26 came from only five open play shots. His movement off the ball is not something you really get in the Spider Bundesliga and even though he's very, very tall, we have a lot of tall strikers in the Spider Bundesliga this season. All like there's so many over 190 centimetres, but he's 193 centimetres and he still moves elegantly and he's very balanced for that kind of tall player. Another strong replacement for Torada, who they obviously lost to Schalke. And one more from Darmstadt, Philip Tietz. Everyone loves the freebie. Um, he was free from Wiesbaden, who apparently is bringing up a lot of talent into the Spider Bundesliga. He was recruited from Darmstadt's data team. He already has five goals from six games. Those five goals came from an XG of 3.11, so it's a good indication of a Serda Dersen top Torjäger replacement. Dersen obviously had 27 goals last season and uh, Tietz at the moment, he's big chances he's scoring. He's scoring 75% of those and to kind of compare it to someone else, Tarada is only currently on 66.7. So you, you kind of can see the kind of quality you're getting from Tietz in that team and I think that's someone, again, they needed to make sure they're not relegation fodder after certain oh, indeed I mean that, that's a great pick I've, I've watched one entire Darmstadt match so far this season that was the one against HSV where he scored twice I think uh, yes as you mentioned Marvin Duksch is definitely one of my picks I think he was the sort of player that Werder needed because they needed a striker that could basically guarantee them 15 to 20 goals they didn't have that in their squad when Sargent Eggestein and uh, a lot of other attacking players left and he seems to be fitting rather well into that Marcus Anfang system I mean he's played under him before he knows what his coach wants and he fitted in seamlessly so that was a great start three goals from the first two matches uh, he actually could have had a couple more against Ingolstadt on the weekend my next pick would be one of Mike's favorite players uh, or used to be one of his favorite players at least that's Mats Müller-Derli uh, who was on a loan from Ghent that loan is now made permanent he's joined Nuremberg I'm still crying, of course. Yes, I would imagine so, because I think at this level, he is definitely one of the best midfielders, attacking midfielders in the Bundesliga too. And I think he's the sort of player that can, you know, liven up the Nuremberg attack. And as we've seen, they six matches into the season, they still haven't lost four draws, two wins. So yes, absolutely great Great signing and always great to get a Norwegian on the list. And I think the transfer that surprised me the most, this somewhat transfer winner, was actually Hanno Behrens joining Hansa Rostock from Nuremberg because I thought Hanno Behrens at 31, he could have still had a couple of good years in, in, in his legs for Nuremberg, but he decided to join a side that was newly promoted from the third tier and a side that most people probably thought would look like it it was going to go back down again and so far what i've seen i've been actually quite impressed by him. and i think he's shown that he's still got a lot of quality he's started with i think two goals and one assist so far into the season and he really can marshal a midfield 
lot of experience at both Bundesliga and Bundesliga 2 level and, and that is going to be a much needed asset for Hansa Rostock moving forward because their season is going to be tough and I think if Hanno Behrens has a good season Hansa Rostock might have a good chance of actually staying in the league. Mike, you're sort of shaking your head. Yeah, that's always a good thing to do in a podcast, I know. Yeah, well, I think it still will be a very, very tough season for Hansa. But um, yeah, like you say, one, one player might make that difference. And of course, he can be that player. Yeah, let's let's wait and see. I'm, I'm a little bit more pessimistic, but uh, yeah. I'm actually of the mind that Hans is going to stay up now. Oh, I kind of agree. I, I, I just think there's three worse teams than Hansa Rostock right now. Maybe, just right now. Maybe not a couple of games later, but right now, I think they've got a pretty good chance. I think Sandhausen was our... Ingolstadt. Ingolstadt were terrible against Werder on the weekend. So, but we will discuss Sandhausen and they will never go down as long... Well, we will come to that. Well, okay. okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to Sandhausen, the stain on the Bundesliga 2, as Mike makes it sound out to be. But let's, let's move on to another transfer-related topic. And that has been discussed quite a lot, and that is players going on strike to force a move. The Bundesliga had a one case in Philip Kostic who tried to force a move to Lazio Roma. The Bundesliga 2 had his own case and that was at Werder Bremen where Marco Friedel called up his coach one on the evening before the match against Hansa Rostock saying that he wasn't in any any state of mind to play. Mike, this sort of thing it started a few years back with Usmane Dembele at Borussia Dortmund who was trying to force a multi-million um, Euro move to Barca back then. So, do you think that this is sort of a worrying trend that has come to stay, or is it just a coincidence that we've seen two players in the Bundesliga and a player in the Bundesliga 2 trying to pull the very same move? I think that this is just a coincidence from that perspective that we have these names in our mind. Um, I think this also happens in other leagues, and um, it, it more or less is still something which follows the Bosman verdict. So players are that mighty nowadays. They have the chance to do so. And, well, I, I think it's, it's not a very nice thing, of course. And I think for most people, it's still nothing you would decide to do because it just is not a good sign of your character. Yeah, but, but I think this also happens in, well, more or less other businesses probably, uh, but, but also, of course, in, in other football leagues. But we might just didn't realize that because we don't have it in mind. But, but Jasmine, do you, do you know that from the Premier League? Are there any examples you know? Oh, my memory is awful when it comes to this. Um, but it happens from time to time. I can't it... think... Yeah, it, it definitely does. It's not a rare occurrence of this happening. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sure, there have been other cases in, in other leagues, but uh, let me just be the devil's advocate here, just real quick. Um, let's say that I, as a nurse, would get an offer to do my nursing elsewhere, only for a lot more cash. I could I could nurse in the big leagues, <laughs> the, the, the Champions League of nursing. But I do have a contract where I work, obviously I do, but I, um, as an employer within uh, the, the European union laws they give me rights to actually get out of my contract fairly easily with three months notice and i'm free to take any other offer that i want with footballers the case is that they don't have the same freedom as 
every other employer in the entire European Union has. And on top of that, these guys are putting their bodies on the line to make as much cash as they possibly can in order to be able to retire at an age of, you know, 33. And that cash has to see them out for a while. It's not like they many of them get offers that guarantees them the same amount of cash flowing in week in and week out. So, could we also see it from that angle, that it's actually just somebody who wants to be professional at the best level possible and make the most money in the process? Because, hey, after all, it's a, it's a job for these guys. I would agree there. I think the problem is with football and especially some of the cases that we're seeing uh, recently, especially in Friedel's case, there's also extra people involved. Um, it's not just employer different employer and player there's also agent and agent responsibilities and i think especially some of the stories i've heard agents are also to take a bit of that blame for mismanagement of player lies being told it it happens it's not just the player the player sees that maybe they can make money elsewhere and i do not doubt um, I do not disagree with their motivations, but I, I think stories like this are always more complicated than they are reported than on, and there are other people to be responsible for without actually painting the full picture and getting everyone in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, there's definitely responsibilities from other people that need to be taken in advance. If, if you're one employer and you want to get out of your contract to work for another employer, that is easy, but you don't normally have that third person, third party playing the strings for both of those kind of, um, you're both of your employers basically, or future perspective employer. So it, I can, don't really like to blame the players and a lot of the times people are giving them wrong advice, especially with the younger players. I see so many younger players just being mismanaged and they just want to play half the time. They, most of them do want to be paid fairly, but a lot of them just want to play no matter what. And sometimes negotiations do not seem as clear as reported. Well, talking about negotiations, uh, the European Players Union actually wants the system of transfer sums to be abolished, allowing players to pick their employers themselves without any money exchanging hands between clubs. Now, would that be a good idea? And uh, come to think of it, what sort of consequences would that yield for the Bundesliga 2, where a lot of the clubs are actually sort of depending upon turning a profit on the transfer market in order to stay financially viable? Well, we will see, <laughs> or we won't probably. <laughs> In general, uh, when you take a look at the transfer uh, sums on a Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich level, of course, you can only say that's a brilliant idea because these sums are really total, I don't know, I, I, I don't even have a word for it. So you, you, you can't think of this being a, a good idea to continue with that. So this business needs to come to a stop. If the solution is to stop this process in total, I don't know. Maybe there is something in between. 
Uh, maybe you can find a, a fair deal, uh, taking into account where the player comes from, uh, what kind of use teams he has played for, and so on, and giving it a fair deal for for all the clubs he has been in the past. I don't know, but but to totally get rid of that transfer system, um, that might lead into other problems that we don't have on our radar at the moment. The managers. I totally agree with what Jasmine just said. So they are pretty uh, much the worst part of the business at the moment. And yeah, well, um, I, I'm not a big fan of this idea in specific, but uh, well, something has to change, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something has to change. I mean, there, there have been uh, several discussions going on about this in the past. I mean, some people have said you should sort of have a limit of how much a club can spend in total on transfers and uh, how much an individual player can cost because when you see transfer sums Mbappe that was discussed this summer that would have been around 200 million euros when you get to these sums and you think that well you know you can basically run uh, an entire healthcare system in an African nation for that almost in some smaller countries it's just not right is it I mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that much money it's uh it it, it has a, it has a foul stance to it but um as you said mike yeah i would agree that um abolishing the system entirely is going to have a lot of consequences uh that probably would be unwanted especially for clubs in the bundesliga too who are some of them are as i said uh depending on transfer sums coming in each year in order to stay financially viable anyways talking about the much maligned sandhausen one of Mike's least favorite teams in the Bundesliga 2 by what he said earlier. Well, I saw them play last Saturday night. They played against HSV. That was on the television here in Norway with some Swedish commentary for some weird reason. But yeah, my, my Saturday night was wild uh, watching Sandhausen take on HSV, hearing a sweet talk about that. And that, you know, when I watched that match, that got, actually got me thinking because I thought, well, if there ever was a team we were never going to talk about on this podcast, it's probably Zantausen. Let me just give you a few facts and figures about them. They play in the stadium called Stadion Mahartwald. That, that is quite a decent capacity. Uh, you can actually jam 15,414 people into that place when there are no COVID restrictions, obviously. But in the last nine years that Sandhausen have managed to play in the Bundesliga, they've actually never averaged more than 6,939. That was two seasons ago. So if you're a math freak, you will by now have worked out that the stadium has is on average always more than half empty. And that's at the best of times. So, Mike, tell me why on earth can such a club be in its ninth Bundesliga 2 season? Because they don't have any great history prior to them getting promoted to the Bundesliga 2. Where do they come from and how have they managed to stay here for so long? Well, first of all, I don't know at all, but of course there are some ideas on that. So uh, we do a season prediction on our podcast and every single year of the last, I would say, five or six years uh, as we're doing it, Sandhausen is definitely one of the teams that got relegated at the end of the season and every single year they prove us wrong. (laughs) And I think for the last two years, I said repeatedly, uh, well... I need to say Sandhausen, but I'm sure they will make it again somehow. 
And they do. And uh, well, for, for the reasons why they are up in second division and, and why they stay there, they are from the region in Germany who has uh, a really strong financial background, uh, also from a company perspective. So they do have a huge support in their area from the companies. Uh, when you just mentioned the number of people that get into the stadium, uh, the uh, inhabitants... <laughs> All of them are managers. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> But the, they, they do have a uh, number of inhabitants. It's the same. It's 15,300 something. <laughs> so everyone can go there and then the stadium is full. But yeah, well, unfortunately they don't. Uh, I've been there at least once uh, in the past. I know some really, really great guys from Sandhausen. So greetings to Stefan on uh, this occasion. And yeah, well, uh, they are they, they they pretty much know where they are coming from, and they are every single year they are happy to be in Zweite Bundesliga, and that's it. But they deserve it. They play a, a football which definitely is the best way they can do it. They know where they come from and, yeah, well, they, they make the best of it, out of it. And if you take a look, we were talking about transfer sums. So what huge amount of money is in professional football and also in second Bundesliga and some clubs really don't make nothing out of it. And uh, I'm just looking for another football club in Hamburg, for example. So, and Sandhausen, They just make the best of what they have. And this is not that much, but they are fine with it. And yeah, well, let, let, I, I'm pretty sure they will make it again in the end this year. You know, you talked about their playing style. And I remember listening to a podcast, uh, not a Norwegian podcast, where former St. Pauli defender Leo Östigo uh, was interviewed. And he said that SPL Zandhausen were hands down the nastiest side to play in the Bundesliga 2. He said their only concern is to break up your play, defend deep, score from crosses into the area of set pieces and committing as many fouls as they possibly can, never allowing the match to find any rhythm. Jasmine, you are tactics experts. What, what is your take on them? Is Östiga right? Are, are they just a bunch of killjoys that uh, want to just grab a goal by some coincidence or counter-attack and then destroy the rest of the match? Yes, pretty much. He was completely right. Um, <laughs> actually, I'll say this. He was completely right. I hated watching their matches. From someone who's come from like Premier League, Arsenal, Arsene Wenger-style football to... <laughs> it's like basically the German Stoke. If anyone knows how Stoke played that with Rory Delap in the long throws into the box and just the defending deep and harsh tackles, it, it's all of that and more basically. And it was true, but it was true until they sacked Juve Kushinat. And since then, They've not really found that identity that they really, really loved and enjoyed and actually worked for them. Like I said, it, they knew who they were and it worked for them. And that's why they were always so hard to actually relegate them. They're like a zombie that keeps coming back to life and haunting you down. Then after Koshinat, Sheila came and got sacked within one first half of a match was it was it five games something like that mm. or maybe my memory is tripping so i can't even remember what his style was and now they've got this weird coach situation with both gerhard Klappinger, former darmstadt as well <laughs> um and stefan kulovitz 
And they lost that kind of individuality. They lost that upsetting rhythm. They kicked the bits out of your approach that was their strength. And I honestly looked at them the other day and I didn't know what they were trying to do. Against Hamburg, they had this weird 5-4-1 set up, which did work once Hamburg thought, oh, we've scored a goal and we're going to defend deep for, I don't know. That doesn't usually happen in Tim Volter ball. So I'm not sure what happened there, but Sandhausen managed to take advantage from that for like 20 minutes. But apart from that 20 minutes, their other games, their structure is unrecognisable and it's not in a good way. And the sad thing is, even though if you look on Transfermarkt, they've got one of the oldest and less valuable squads in the Zweite Bundesliga, but they do have good individual players for a good coach to provide those solutions in possession or at least go back to the kind of negative, nasty approach that they had. If this solution doesn't work for them and they get another coach and they manage to stay up, I wouldn't be surprised. It just wouldn't. But yeah, if anyone can remember the kind of, I'm going to try and think of the year that Stoke were in the Premier League and upset everyone in the wet Tuesday night at Stoke meme came about um, <laughs> around that time. That's how Sandhausen used to play and used to play it well. <laughs> well, Messi couldn't do it at Stoke back in the day, they said. So, so uh, he probably couldn't do it in Sandhausen either. So it's going to be exciting to see what, what they are. Well, probably not going to be exciting to see what the, how they are going to stay in the league. But uh, as it turns out, Mike is pretty sure that they will. And I have two players who will be responsible for that. Who? Who are they? First one, Daniel Kedaruel. He's the striker. And he didn't do that good this year uh, up to now. But I'm pretty sure he will do it. I, I'm totally convinced on that. And... The second, if you have seen the game on Saturday, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you will agree with me. It's Patrick Dreves, the, the keeper. Yeah, absolutely. This was amazing. He really showed that he, you know, I mean, he, he could have actually caught the eye of some Bundesliga side. I mean, he's, he's a bit up there in age, probably too old to get, earn a move to the Bundesliga now. Oh, but he's yeah, he was absolutely yeah, he can still play some years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he has played at the end of the last season for Bochum and uh, they didn't trust him to perform in the first league. So he said, okay, I don't want to sit on the bench, then I will play in the second league. And well, now he does it for Sandhausen and let's wait and see. They always strike me as such a bunch of rejects at time because, you know, when Dennis Diekmeier didn't find anywhere to go, he ended up in Sandhausen. When Alexander Esswein didn't have anywhere to go, he ended up in Sandhausen. And, uh, well, you mentioned Daniel Keterul there. He actually has a great life story. If you do want to do a bit of surfing on Wikipedia and such, he actually was a promising youngster during his teenage years. Started making it in sort of the lower divisions and was tipped to make a move to the Bundesliga or Bundesliga 2. And he then got caught up with the wrong crew and ended up spending time in jail, three years in total, for armed robbery. Once he got out of uh, jail, he actually uh, made it back and ended up being a professional footballer just the same. So that is some life story that is worth reading. Uh, all right, last topic about the Bundesliga 2, and it's, it's sort of a, well, maybe sort of a more general topic that comes up every now and then and we can sort of package this one into what happened in Nuremberg on the weekend. Nuremberg's Ultras, they've actually fought a really hard and long battle to 
get the stadium named Max Morlock Stadion, which is obviously named after the hero who won the 54 World Cup with Germany, who was a Nuremberg legend. I think he played something like 700 or matches for Nuremberg. Quite incredible. Stayed there all his life. And they actually managed to get that stadium name through a crowdfunding initiative that was supported by a bank. Now that rights deal has expired, but the stadium is still named the same. But obviously there's a discussion within the city of Nuremberg, as the city of Nuremberg are owning the stadium, if they should sell the naming rights. And the, the Ultras had a demonstration on the market square in the city of Nuremberg, handing out in uh, red inflatable balls, saying that, they don't want the stadium to be renamed under any circumstances and that they're going to protest any such move if anybody should try that. Now, Mike, how important are stadium names in sort of like for German football fans? Yeah, quite important. And there is a, a long history, of course, of, of stadium names. I think the first one, in fact, was in Hamburg when uh, the HSV renamed their Volksparkstadion into AOL Arena, rest in peace AOL, and, and they renamed their stadium so often until now that there is a very, very funny saying uh, that yesterday in our tube station I met two young guys and one of them told me, I'm a traditionalist, for me it will always remain the AOL Arena. So, uh, of course, just a joke. Uh, yeah, this is really something that is in the heart of German football supporters. And uh, for example, for St. Pauli, we have made it clear in our annual meeting that we will not sell our stadium name. So the Milan Tour Stadion will always be the Milan Tour Stadion until the next time when an annual meeting says we will change it. But I hope that this will never happen. And Especially nowadays, all clubs struggle uh, from a financial perspective and they need to sell whatever they can sell. And if it will be the stadium name once again, then they will do that. And I can totally understand that the Nuremberg supporters do not want to, uh, this to happen. And they fought for that a long period. So like you said, there was this campaign, this crowdfunding campaign, and then they had finally that bank who supported that and who kept that name even though they paid for it. So, yeah, I'm quite curious if they can make it. I mean, it's sort of like keeping your old stadium names or traditional stadium names. Is, uh, and in this case, it's actually not a traditional stadium name at all because it used to be the Frankenstadion, didn't it? Yeah, And correct. then it was renamed a bunch of times. I mean, the, the arena in, in, or the stadium in Nuremberg has had a lot of different names over the years. Easy Credit Arena. Easy Credit, there, there was one. <laughs> I think it was also called the Man Arena after the producer of heavy-duty vehicles. So... Yeah, a lot of different names. Nobody remembers any of those names. But the Ultras wanted to honor Max Morlock for his accomplishments and his services to the club. And, and that's how that name came about a few years ago now. Yeah, and, and one thing uh, which is quite clever on this campaign, because every single company who now wants to buy that name, well, they will have a huge loss of their image by doing that. Because... Everyone was fighting for the Max Morlock Stadium. And 
if this now will be called, I don't know, the McDonald's arena, <laughs> well, it, 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 it is not the same and everyone will hate, oh, well, not everyone, but many people will hate that company. And so the value of the stadium name for the club, it's decreasing. So they, they, this campaign might be successful in the end. I mean, you know, I support a club for the Bremen who uh, they sort of faced an outcry when it came public that they wanted to sell the naming rights to the Weserstadion and in the end it happened just the same. It was turned into the Wohninvest Weserstadion uh, which is such a terrible name and well you know we could record an entire podcast episode of all the crap that Wohninvest Lounge has to had to face during that time <laughs> sponsoring the club. I mean there were even sort of ultras covering the windows of their lounge in order for them not to see anything of the match with protest signs against Vaughan Invest and such. So it's sort of a, a very contentious topic for a lot of ultra groups and a lot of German fans. But if this is going to be successful, it's, it stands to be seen. But I don't know. I, I do like it, the fact that, that German football fans actually fight every inch of the way to keep things the way they want it to be. Because, Jasmine, you come from England. You cannot necessarily always say the same about English fans. Not to be mean to them, but... Um. <laughs> um, I think it's part that the fans don't know how to protest properly in terms of, in comparison to German, their German counterparts. We've seen the ultras actually plan, actually have a very structured way of going about things and an educated way of how it's going to affect the people involved for both club and businesses that try and take on, you know, naming rights, for example. There are a lot of things that English fans don't do in that way. They don't know how to disrupt properly in terms, again, in the same way German fans do it. And even if they do try and do that, there's so many obstacles in English football that I don't think German football has. And I think that's more to do with the culture and how specific German football is to the fans in Germany. It's much more of a cultural thing. It's m so much more than just the football. It's lifestyle. It's basically, in a nice way, religion. I don't mean that as a, <laughs> as a bad thing. It, it's something that's so much more. And I think it, it's been easier to take those fights for the people here than in England. But can you imagine that Old Trafford or Anfield or Highbury uh, could have been renamed. So Highbury is a good example because they built the new stadium only to rename it and sell it. <laughs> no, of course, they don't. But, um, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that Highbury or Old Trafford would have been renamed or sold. I, I, of, of course, it will happen in two years' time from now, I'm sure, but at the moment I can't imagine. I, I feel like Old Trafford probably not, but... I, I feel like the whole time of early 2000s and what happened in the Premier League opened a massive can of worms where people were like, oh crap, I need more money, we will sell our souls. And that's basically what Arsenal did in that kind of time period. <laughs> and, they suffered, and the funniest thing, they sold everything and they thought they got the best deals for everything at the time. And they didn't. And now they're being put to shame by other clubs who are managing it smarter. But yeah, I think a lot of it was to do with 
2004 and a specific London club that I'm not going to name today. <laughs> All right. Okay. We'll be back with the lower league news after this quick break. It's part two of the show, and I'll have to talk very, very quickly if I want to catch any of the election results here in Norway. Which means that we'll just dive straight into the lower league news, and we'll also be premiering a new segment, which hopefully is going to be a mainstay on the show, but it depends upon if Sam Pauli wins the next couple of matches, to be honest. <laughs> Anyways, let's start off with 8060 Munich and, and their ultras, because... Well, first of all, they are a fan scene that would deserve so much better than third-tier football. They've been through a lot of hardship. They've fallen victim to a investor who has sort of bought this club as his plaything. They used to be in the Bundesliga and the Bundesliga 2 on a regular basis. I actually grew up with them being in the Bundesliga all the time. Now they are continuous to go up to the Bundesliga 2 from the third tier this season. But what has made their name pop up in the news over the last couple of weeks is not the fact that Sasha Mölders is playing there, but it's the fact that the high-ups at the club are considering to move the cup match between them and Schalke to the Olympiastadion. Now, the Lions are playing their home matches at the stadium in Andergrünewalder Straße, which is a charming place. It actually still has a scoreboard that is operated manually. So there are cardboards that are pushed up by some man who, who stands there with a long stick and just puts them up there to, to update the score, which is it's actually rather charming. Stands are rather old too. I've been there once, loved it, so needless to say. But the ultras, they want to stay at that place and they want to squash the board's plan to move to the bigger Olympia starting, which actually could mean an extra of 500 or was it 50 well 50,000 euros for the club Mike what do you think they're so opposed to that move well first of all we can discuss this now for at least an hour <laughs> so apologies well I don't know where to begin because uh, it of course depends on how much you know about the history on that stadium discussion in Munich as you said they played already in the Olympiastadion some years ago then they moved together with Bayern Munich into the Allianz Arena and this was the beginning of the end for them so uh, in the end they got relegated to third division and well they, they are not coming back from that if you ask me at least not this season and but, but the good thing on getting back to third division was or it was even a league below that they played yeah. once I think that they went back to the Grünwalder Straße and the Grünwalder Straße in Germany is also known as the Sechtsgar Sechtsgar is a short form of 60 in German and um, yeah th this is their stadium and many many clubs as we already discussed with the stadium name in the first part um, some clubs are really linked to their stadium and the fan scenes are linked with their heart to their stadium and so this is very very emotional and I think especially the Grünwalder Straße is one of the very very few stadiums which is so yeah linked to that statement like no one else um St. Pauli of course the Milan Tour uh, maybe Gladbach with the old Bökelberg and uh, Schalke with the Parkstadion Dortmund with the Westfalenstadion when you think of that club you think of that stadium 
And this is definitely the way for, for uh, 8060 and the Grünwalder. I, I even have a book here in my shelf called The Sechskas Stadium. I forgot to read it before we do this. Recording. I'm sorry. Uh, so, but, but that definitely is one of the reasons. And I think it would even be worse if, if the uh, club thinks of going to the Allianz Arena. I think then we would have... Uh, no, that would have been an outcry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. you, you so, saw that rainbow color uh, thing uh, during the summer yeah. caused a huge stir, which it did, yeah, and but, rightly so. But uh, this would be a massive outcry within the city of Munich among those fans. Yeah, but, but, but talking about uh, why should they do it? Why should they go to the Olympic Stadium? I don't really believe that they will earn more money by that. So, yes, there might be, I don't know, 20,000 instead of 10,000 probably, but they need to pay to play there. Uh, the costs would be huge. And most importantly, as a club of the third division, you can beat a second Bundesliga club, you can beat Schalke. And you will have the advantage in that tiny little stadium at the Grünwalder Straße and you don't, won't have that <laughs> advantage in the big Olympia Stadium with that running track around it and so on. There will be no atmosphere. You might have probably half of the visitors supporting the guest team. So uh, I, I can totally understand that they protest against it and um, they do have my full support. I can't understand why the club is even thinking about it. Neither can I. Um, best of luck to them. Well, move on to the next topic. And uh, this is a transfer that we didn't get to talk about in, in the first part of the show. But it was actually the biggest transfer that German football has produced all transfer window long. And the one I'm talking about is, of course, you all have probably heard about this one already by now, but I'm going to mention it anyways. David Odonka is getting back out of retirement, joining six-tier outfit to Bövinghausen. And if that wasn't enough, guess what? That club, which is based in Dortmund, has another former German international playing for them, and that is Kevin Großkreutz. Now, Mike, some of our listeners might have forgotten who David Odonker <laughs> is. Some of them may not. Some of them may even be too young to remember who he is. I mean, if you're 15 or 17, you probably never seen David Odonker play, at least not in Germany. So, can you tell him who he is and why Germany fell in love with him back in 2006? Yeah, 2006, we all remember the Sommermärchen, so the World Cup being placed in Germany and that year. Um, and when the squad of Germany has been announced, there was really this one big surprise. This was David Odonkor, really young guy at that time. He wasn't that famous. Uh, he was just fast. And probably... He, at least for the sixth tier, he still is very fast, I'm quite sure. <laughs> um, and there was this uh, one magic moment in that tournament, which really put the whole nation, um, except me, I don't like the German national team, but okay, other topic, uh, the, the whole nation on fire. And it was the second group game against Poland. Germany started very good. They, they won in the first game, I think it was against Costa Rica or something. And then there was the second game against Poland. It was a really tough match. And Germany uh, had their chances, but they were not able to score. And then we had uh, the injury time, second half, 91st, 92nd minute. Uh, and David Ondonkor, he showed why Jürgen Klinsmann has got him into the squad. He did what he 
was able to do best. He just run on the right-hand side of the pitch. He brought in the ball to the middle and then there was there Oliver Neuville and he scored from, I don't know, two or three meters because the assist from Odonko was just great and he did that with all the speed he had. Yeah, and this was the may maybe the moment where, where Germany fell in love with him. But um, yeah, that's what he is famous for. It was a very brief moment because the rest of his career, he was riddled by injuries. He spent many years abroad, actually, at Real Betis. And when he came back, he ended up playing some time for Alemannia Aachen, I seem to remember. So given that his body has been riddled by injuries and he's now 37 years old, uh, Jasmine, do you think that his body is going to cope with the uh, six-tier football in Germany? It should. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I've not watched a lot of six-tier, <laughs> but um, it depends how physical they are, I imagine. Some it's... of the challenges are rather laid. <laughs> Uh, I mean, depends if he's on a pay-as-you-earn contract or if he's just contracted. If he just gets injured and is just going to be paid again, like, that's probably good for 37. But if, if some of the challenges, as I am to believe them, that's not going to go too well. Uh, especially, there is only so much you can train your body for. In football in general, you can be at your peak. I think a really good example of someone who really tried hard to keep their body at optimum like performance coming from a more injury-focused background, Per Mertesacker, he did everything he could to make his body better, um, tried everything, had his specialist team who were his uh, good mates come to London to help him as well and unless you're doing that at that age yeah with that those rough tackles i don't see it going too well for him anyways let's let's hope that he plays there for some time because if we ever are going to take this podcast on the road and we should the Westfalenliga 2 uh, should be the, our first stop and of course watching big calf and david odonka play uh, david odonka has played 28 minutes so far in the two matches where he's featured and big calf has played well, he's a he's a regular on the right-back position. Birvinghausen actually lead the pack after two match days with six points. So future is looking bright. So fifth year next season. Yeah. Fifth year next season? Well, let's see. Let's see. Maybe we can do it this season, but I, I doubt it with COVID restriction and all that. But uh, anyways, Mike, do you, have you actually been to that place, uh, Mike? Have you been to Birvinghausen? I don't think so, no. I mean, your list of uh, grounds on, on footballogy is actually quite extensive and impressive, so I wouldn't have <laughs> found it out of character for you if you'd been there. But, uh, well, if we can add another ground for you... I'll put it on my that'd list. That'd be great. Anyways, moving changing topics ever so slightly, and let's look east. Anagi Koppus and Carl Seisiena have actually reported match-fixing attempts. The first story that came out came out on... September 4th, when it was reported that some of Anagi Koppus's players were approached, or they approached the leadership of their club, saying that they had been offered money if they could help make the match against Ludwigshafen FC go the right way. We are talking about a match not in the league, but in a regional cup competition. That regional cup competition then obviously allows teams to qualify for the DFB Pokal, so this match, it might not be the biggest of deals for Energy coppers who want to get back to the third tier, but it is kind of a big deal because being the DFB Pokal is actually a, 
important in terms of getting some funds uh, for these sites. And uh, to top that all up, four days later, Carlsas Jena went public on their website saying that a bunch of their players had received messages on their private Instagram accounts, which offered them money if they were able to help fix matches. Guys, do you think that this is a coincidence that we had two such attempts in lower leagues in the space of just four days? Or are we actually talking about a bigger problem? I think it's definitely a bigger problem, but I don't think that it will come to public. Because the main problem here is that you can make football betting on a lower league regional cup and Probably this is not done in Germany, it's done in Asia. And why on earth should anyone in Asia make a bet on Energie Cottbus against Ludwigshafen FC in a regional cup of, of what is it? I don't know what this cup is called. So why at all is this match even offered? And of course, you can't go to a, to a Bundesliga or a second Bundesliga team and ask the players to fix the match because they earn so much money, they don't do that. And they know there are penalties on that and they, they would never risk it. This has taken place, of course, in the past, but I don't think that it will happen uh, nowadays. But for those lower leagues, well, the, the people are earning, I don't know, some money, of course, but not enough to, to uh, be happy with it. And therefore, if you offer them some money, well, They might go for that. And of course, in these two cases, it has been reported, but we don't know of the other, let's say, 100 cases where it has not been reported because no one will talk about it if they just take the money. Mm. Well, I mean, you talked about this sort of thing happening in the Bundesliga and Bundesliga 2. Uh, there were actually some international headlines back in 2004 when the name Robert Heutzer made the rounds in the international sports press and uh, for those of you who haven't heard his name he was a ref who worked with the Croatian match fixing syndicate and he managed to fix a few matches in the Bundesliga 2 and a few matches in lower leagues and a match in the DFB Pokal or was it two matches I think one match in the DFB Pokal as well so these days we're being told that It's a lot tougher for guys like Robert Heuser to fix matches because things like irregular betting patterns and the, even the big Asian gambling markets, they are watched more closely. And so something like this would happen, would surface much earlier. So Jasmine, do you think that that would actually be the case? And is that probably the reason why fixers might look further down the divisions? If they cannot be assured that they won't get caught if they try to pull off the same thing in the Bundesliga and the Bundesliga 2 or the DFB Pokal. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways of looking at it. I think that sort of match fixing across bigger leagues is probably going to be less successful, mainly because players are not willing to risk their reputation uh, and their career and their livelihood, basically, to gain some extra money when they're earning so much. There are players, more vulnerable players, especially lower down the leagues in not only Germany, any other country that will be looking to maybe take a payoff, but it's not just players that are affected, as you said, Robert Hoysia, and they target match officials who are likely to be paid less. So it is definitely a massive problem 
and lower leagues are going to be more targeted because they know the players are probably more likely to take a payoff than bigger players. But coming from a gambling industry background, um, seeing things when betting, suspicious betting patterns have come up, I think it would just be kind of fun to go through what some of those are and how the gambling companies try and manage that from their side because if there were no marketing markets, especially on these negative markets, it would be less of a problem. So these kind of match fixing results aren't from results. They're not usually done because that can be quite obvious, um, especially if you had someone like top of the league versus bottom of the league. And if everyone started to put loads of money into the bottom of the league team winning, it would look quite suspicious and it's things like that gambling uh, companies have kind of algorithms to pick up on those kind of things. They also take a look at changing customer behaviours. Again, there's plenty of algorithms about that. Bets from people in the same area, especially if there's a tip-off, they normally are located. You can kind of tell, especially if bets are coming from abroad and they use a VPN, you can tell if a VPN has been used because they kind of show the same numbers across different bets. There's also the time the bets are placed, if there's a big rush just before an event starts and if there's loads of money going onto those negative markets. So a player being carded, um, yellow card scores, kind of those kind of markets. So there's quite a lot from the gambling companies to try and offset that. They're not always going to be perfect and a lot of this is preventing because at the end of the day, more vulnerable people are going to be most affected by this. There's a great video on this on TIFO Football as well that came out recently and it goes through certain cases and how the football industry can kind of offset this as well as gambling companies themselves. I mean, the, probably the most important thing is to stop players from gambling themselves. Uh, I mean, Zampaoli's had a player uh, who actually got in very deep when it came to gambling and, and playing poker, and that was René Schnitzler, um, who um, actually, uh, he actually got caught up in... Well, he didn't fix matches, but he actually made a match fixer believe that he did. <laughs> And they, I mean, this is the most incredible story, and I, I think we are going to talk about it at some point. So stay tuned for that. But it's it's incredible, and and that man, he got in so deep, he actually ended up fixing matches or saying that he was and didn't do it. But it was incredible. But anyways, another thing that I just thought about when when you were talking, Jasmine, was the fact. I think it was Klaus Lundekam who wrote in a book that uh, when he was a player back in the day, in you know in the nineties and early two thousands. Players sort of could get in touch with the upcoming opponents and say, well, you know what? Should we just all bat on who gets the first throw in? Because you can bet on who gets the first throw in, right? So if you get a kickoff, we just play a long ball and maybe play it out of play. Or if you get the kickoff and we've betted on us, maybe you just you know put a long pass into our area and we just had it clear and everybody makes a lot of money. So those were the kind of things that players talked about themselves. And obviously... Stopping players from batting, I think, is probably going to be the most important thing in terms of prevention when it comes to actually players being vulnerable to match fixing. But what if they get their friends to do it? Yeah. And 
This is the problem, so you can stop players. Uh, but we saw, was it Kieran Trippier who accidentally told his friend that he was going somewhere and who bet on it? Mm -hmm. it, it was something that it was something like that recently and there's a big hoo-ha about did he let them know was he being genuine about it and but this is what happens um i've worked in uh, we call it in the gambling uh, industry is know your customer so if a certain person who's new and but betting a certain amount or withdrawing a certain amount we need to do these checks on them basically and you can pull up databases to see same VPN, same address to see if they're fiddling the system. And it's quite easy to do that with a football player. You know their name, you don't know their friend's name. So again, it's kind of tip-offs, same errors that are always good indicators for those kind of things, which we can do now because of AI and, you know, algorithms and all that. Mm. So I can only hope that most of those are deterred but yeah there needs to be a little bit more prevention because it's not just gambling it can be alcoholism it can be any kind of addiction that leads them to want more money to which can be targeted by match fixes and we have to remember people who want to match fix things are not just some person off the street these are organized criminals and basically mafioso types in their countries so yeah <laughs> yeah probably not the, the sort of crew you want to go on a cruise with for the next uh, 14 days anyways let's premiere that segment that i i thought you know when i think about you mike i think about ground hopping because we are both on footballogy and i've uh, i've racked up a measly what is it 39 stadiums or something like that and you are an entirely different league to me having gone to almost 360 different places. Yeah, let me say there are people who are definitely in another league than myself. So a friend of mine has something around 800. So yeah, well, and, and I just have 18 countries. He has 72. So I, I might have some more stadiums than you do. Okay, but there are other guys who play even in other leagues. I mean, well, I've I've got what I got. I've got Denmark, Germany, Norway, yeah, Hungary. At least, <laughs> yeah, in England, that that's it. So I'm I'm not that impressive when it comes to to the ground hopping game. But since you've I've I've seen your list of German grounds you've been to, and that is really extensive. And I thought it might be a good idea to ask you name a German ground in the lower leagues that is worth visiting and tell our listeners why that ground is worth visiting and I think you are going to start with a ground that by the name of it it might be in Hamburg yeah correct and then I would like to start with two stadiums indeed and one which is the more obvious one is the Hohe Luft it's uh, the oldest stadium in with an existing stand, with a still existing stand. It's the stadium in Hamburg where the first uh, national game was taking place in, I don't know, around something 902 or something like that. And FC Victoria still plays there. That's, that's the home team. They have really this lovely wooden stand still existing. Unfortunately, they moved to the fourth tier some years ago and then they 
build all those fences that uh, needs to be there from, from a legal perspective. They even play now on artificial grass. So, well, maybe not that charming anymore. And that's the reason why I do not prefer that. I would like to mention the Elbe Stadion. This is, we, we talked about Tos Bövenstedt, who play in the sixth team. Bövinghausen. Bövinghausen, I'm sorry. And the Elbe Stadion, it's the home ground of two teams. It's the SV Wedel and the FC Roland Wedel. And fierce, fierce local rivals. Yeah, but they play in different leagues. And <laughs> Roland Wedel is the one that is playing in the Bezirksliga, at least, which is the seventh tier at the moment. And the reason why I uh, would like to mention that is, it is, first of all, it just has... 200 meters until you are at the Elbe, of course. And it has a lovely big hill on one side of the place, fully covered with grass. So you can just, especially in the summer, you can just lay down, watch the match. It has a running track around the field, so you, you will not hit by a ball when you lay there and don't pay attention. So everything is fine, but it's really, really lower league. <laughs> I love that. And uh, you know what? I'm, I'm t I'll try to find pictures going forward of the stadiums you mentioned and try to put them up on our Facebook page. Hooray. Yes, let's do that. And I think this is a great way to end uh, this episode of uh, Talking Fußball Extra, the Ausstieg edition. The podcast that provides you with all the latest from the Bundesliga 2 and the most important news from the lower leagues and now also the best grounds from around Germany. Adrian Toole has been the producer of this episode. Mike, a pleasure having you on, as always. Uh, if our listeners didn't catch you on Twitter after the previous show, here's your chance to tell them once again where they can find you on that particular social network. Yeah, it's Mike Krues, okay, R-U-E on Twitter, uh, but you probably better follow the Milan tour. Well, follow both and, you know, stay up on uh, all things St. Pauli. Uh, Jasmine, great talking to you once again. Where can our listeners find you on Twitter and where can they find your work? Because uh, you are around quite a bit at other places too. Um, you can find me on Twitter at jasmine underscore bh1. I don't know where else at the moment you can find me on, but I'll, it'll all be there. And hopefully next episode, I'll have less DIY sounds in the background. <laughs> well, uh, building IKEA stuff is always lovely. I love it. It's the best Scandinavia has to offer. Uh, my name is Nick Viltagen, and you can find me at Norm Musings. You can find our podcast on Twitter at Talking Foosball. Make sure to give us a rating on iTunes. Tell a friend about the pod and bring them on board on the German football train. The more the merrier. Up next on this channel are the Fantasy Boys, James and Flo, providing you all you need to know about the world of fantasy football. Talking Foosball Extra will be back next week and there I'll be looking at the use of insights and uh, painkillers in the Bundesliga with uh, Arne Steinberg. And we'll bring you all the latest from the Bundesliga 2 and the lower leagues once again two weeks from now. Until then, it is goodbye for now. Goodbye.